Um, we're going to look at the book of Jude again. And um, I'd, I just want to uh, begin by reading the whole letter again, because it's one chapter. So let's read Jude. It's the last book before Revelation. So the penultimate book of the Bible. All right. Jude, verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who were called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued a natural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses. He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but he said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they're destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them. For they walked in the way of Cain. They abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. And they perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts. As they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves. Waterless clouds swept along by the winds. Fruitless trees in late autumn twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars from whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones, to execute judgment on all 
and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They're loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keeping yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt, save others by snatching them out of the fire, to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Saviour, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. I'd like you to stand and I'm going to pray for us. Please stand if you can and I want to pray for us. Father God, this is your word. It reflects who you are. Today, open up our hearts to see better who you are, to follow you more wisely and more closely. Take a hold of your word today, Lord, by the power of your spirit. Reveal to us what it means, because we really need your help. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm sure that some of you, about halfway through the reading, were thinking, I don't like this. <laughs> this is a weird book. This is the word of the Lord. This is the inspired word of God, written by the hands of a half-brother of Jesus, Judas, who abbreviates his name to Jude. And what he's doing is he's bringing balance, actually, to our view of God. You know, right in the first verse, it says, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept, notice that, and kept for Jesus Christ. And at the very end of the book, what does it say? Now to him who's able to Keep you. Hallelujah. The whole of what you've heard is embraced by two arms. In the first verse, keeping you. In the last two verses, keeping you 
We are kept. If you wanted to put it in one phrase, you'd say kept by the power of God through faith for salvation. And that is the theme of the whole of the history of the people of God. From their inception till now, till Jesus comes again. We are kept throughout history, through every opposition, through every persecution, through every infighting, through every division, through everything that has happened, every war, every peacetime, every time of prosperity, every time of persecution. We are kept by the power of God through faith for the salvation which we're going to inherit. Glory to God. God loves the church. The Trinity loves the church. And they love the people of God from their inception 4,000 years ago right till today. You can be sure of that as you read this book. But we are called as the people of God to stand firm against the world, infiltrating the church and changing our view of our most glorious God. Verse 3 said this. This is the object, objective. Contend. For the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Hallelujah. I want you to notice too that Jude says these people and these mindsets, these world views crept in. (laughs) They weren't obvious. They're here today. And they came in unnoticed. You know, Jude set out his idea at the beginning. I wanted to write to you a very beautiful letter about our salvation, which we'd have all shouted hallelujah to all the way through the reading. But he said, but unfortunately, something's going on down there that I need to write to you about. A letter that's stern. One commentator said, it was a harsh letter. I would say it's a true letter reflecting the character and attributes of our God. Jude said very clearly, there are two dangers that are invading you as a church. One is you're perverting the grace of God into sensuality. In other words, you've slipped into cheap grace. And the second thing he said is you've been denying our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And I would like to say, as I read the letter, that particularly relates to our understanding of the cross of Christ. The key word here. Verse 5, remind you. He says it again later in the letter. I want to remind you. You see, what Jude is saying here throughout this letter, in all the examples that he gives, 
He's saying this has happened so many times in the history of God's people. It's like a circular thing that just keeps happening again and again and again to God's people. And then he gives all of these examples of how it has happened again and again. And he makes the point, even with the Old Testament examples, the first one he gives, the deliverance of the people of God from Egypt through the Red Sea on their way to the promised land, he, he makes it really clear that it was Jesus who led them. You see, the Old Testament foreshadows Jesus. Even some of the characters that are highlighted in the Old Testament, they're meant to give us some sort of image of who Jesus will be. Even the feasts, even the sacrifices, even the events, even the history itself, even crossing through the Red Sea in the New Testament is interpreted looking back as being about Jesus Christ and his centrality, his cross, the Passover that they took before they crossed over out of Egypt into the wilderness. They foreshadow Christ. So he gives a whole list of examples where it has happened in the old covenant and then finishes with the words of the apostles. Don't be surprised. It's a pattern. It happened with the people of God who left Egypt. And there's a strong warning in the letter. I'm sure you picked it up. If you didn't, you must have been sleeping. (laughs) Because the strong message, right in the first example, Jude is saying there were 2.5 million people leaving Egypt. Two people entered the promised land. Remember the character of God. Don't forget it. 2.5 million people left. Two people entered the promised land, from those 2.5 million people. And then he uses an example that we don't know about. It's in, it's in some Jewish writings, some Hebrew writings that we are not familiar with, and it's not part of my Bible, and I'm sure it's not part of yours, about the angels who rebelled, who were bound in darkness, held. Uh, some people believe they were people, angels that fell with Satan when Satan was thrown out of heaven and they were bound and they're waiting for their judgment with the coming of Christ. And then the example of Sodom and Gomorrah, which uh, Simon really highlighted last week and what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah, the consequences of not really grasping hold of the true nature of our God. The archangel Michael arguing with the devil about the body of Moses. You won't find that in my Bible or in your Bible. But again, it's in literature, something called the Testament of Moses, which we don't even have. Then we get the example of Cain, the same pattern. God's pattern of what happened. Cain abandoned God's order. Balaam, who prophesied for money. Korah, who rebelled against the leaders and ultimately typified through Enoch. You might think, even the example of Enoch, where's that in scripture? Well, it is alluded to, Enoch was a prophet. When he named his son, he was declaring a prophecy. He called his son Methuselah. Methuselah lived for 969 years. His name means, when I die, it will happen. Or, his death shall send. The name Methuselah, 
Noah was Enoch's great-grandson. When Methuselah died, the rain started to fall. And there was a rescue plan which people turned against and forsook. God's punishment is a must. But he gave a thousand years. 969, actually. To show mercy and give opportunity for people to turn to him again. Then topped by the apostles, who then give that same message. In the last time, these people will come in and pervert the gospel. In these examples, before we get uh, too far on in my message, in these examples, there are several examples of books that can't be found in my Bible. And I'm going to go off at an angle, just for a few, five minutes. How do we know that this Bible is the inspired word of God? And not like those books, some of which have disappeared, and which we don't consider to be part of being the inspired word of God. Well, the first thing we can say, I'm not going to go into any of these, I haven't got time, but when we look at the inspired word of God, we see that there is evidence from the thousands of manuscripts that the Bible that we're reading today is the same Bible that was written by the authors. As archaeological evidence gets underway and as takes off, it only proves the history and concrete evidence of the Bible books. And then we get to supernatural evidence. By supernatural evidence, I mean there were messengers, messengers who brought the word of the Lord and who did miracles. There was the message. The message was authenticated by history. And there were miracles that attended the word. Let me give you some examples. I I need some water, actually. I'm really dry. Oh, yeah, thank you very much. (laughs) That's better. That's better. I can fire up again now. All right. So so let's take some examples. Genesis 12, 7. We're looking at, we're going off at a tangent. We're saying, how do we know, with all these other books being quoted, how do we know that the book that we've got is the word of God? And I've said there's manuscript evidence there's archaeological discoveries that are proving its, its correctness. And then I'm talking about the supernatural evidence of the messenger, uh, the message, and the prophetic. If we look at Genesis 12, verse 7, let me explain what I mean by that. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, to your offspring I will give this land. He said that to Abraham. To your offspring I will give this land. And yet that land was taken off them. In 587, the remaining people of the people of Israel that from Judah were taken to Babylon. They were scattered across his empire and the place was destroyed. But just as Jeremiah prophesied, they returned to that land under a king called Cyrus who was prophesied by name in the book of Isaiah. And then in AD 70, again, their land was destroyed and they were thrown out of their land. And nearly 2,000 years later, 1948, 
They return to their land. You might say, well, hasn't that happened with other nations? The answer is no, never. They're the only nation on the planet that has left their land twice, been scattered and defeated, and returned to their land and established the state of Israel. It's a modern-day miracle reminding us that Jesus is returning again. Then we get Daniel, another example of what I mean by supernatural evidence. Daniel prophesied not only about the kingdom he was living under, Babylon, but about the next kingdom, the Medo-Persians. He prophesied about the Greek empire. He specifically prophesied about Alexander the Great and Antiochus Epiphanes, one of his sons. And he prophesied about Rome. And he prophesied about the coming of the Messiah. And he prophesied about the kingdom of God. So accurately, if you read it, It verifies him and his prophecy. Ezekiel 26, we won't read it because of time. In Ezekiel 26, Ezekiel says, The town of Tyre on the coast, your stones will be thrown into the sea. And he makes a big thing of it in the first six verses of Ezekiel 26. He says, the stones of your buildings will be thrown into the sea when you're defeated. When Alexander the Great came to Tyre, a group of people from the city holed up in a tower out in the sea. And Alexander the Great was an impatient leader. He didn't want to wait for these guys to be starved out of existence. So he took the order, take the stones of the city, throw them into the sea and make a walkway for his army to walk in and destroy the tower. The prophecy was fulfilled absolutely, exactly under a godless leader called Alexander the Great. For Christ, there are more than 270 prophecies in the Old Testament writers. Specific prophecies about his birthplace, about his life, about his death, about his resurrection. Read Psalm 22. In Psalm 22, there are 15 direct statements of what happened on the cross. Psalm 22 is the best description anywhere of the pain of a cross. A cross hadn't even been in existence. It was invented by the Romans. And yet Psalm, David writing the Psalm a thousand years before Christ could describe perfectly what it means to die on a cross. Even the quotes that were spoken by Jesus and by the people around the cross are mentioned in Psalm 22. For the mathematicians amongst you, for 16 of the most specific prophecies of Christ to be right is a chance of 1 in 10 to the power 45 for the mathematicians. If you're thinking, that's a big number. Yeah, it is. There are 10 to the power 82 atoms in the entire universe. In other words, it's impossible. It's impossible. And yet, it's there in the word of God. This book, we need to treasure it. It's the word of the Lord. And what it says is true and has been upheld through history. I could talk about the resurrection, which is another great proof of the word of God. Back to the theme that we were on. I said that in the book of Jude, even though he's quoting other literature as well, 
He gives example after example of God, how he works in history and with us. I believe there's three themes that come through all those examples. Three powerful themes. Themes that corrupt the church. Take note of these themes. Because they're in all of us. I've discovered it myself. They're a temptation to every single one of us. That's why they keep repeating through history over the last 4,000 years. The rebel. Number one, the rebel. Do you know you were created to be a ruler? Jesus, uh, it was Jesus. Jesus, the Father and the Spirit, when they created man in their image, in the image of God, he created them. He told them to go and subdue the earth. We're in charge of the earth. Actually, the earth is our concern, the church of Jesus Christ. Because it's God's painting. It's what God made. We don't want to insult the, the, the creator by mistreating the creation, do we? We don't want to do that. We're the main people to be speaking up on this. But actually, we're not only capable of being the ruler, we're capable of being the rebel. There's a rebel in all of us. When someone says, do this, raise your hands in worship, there's something inside us. I'm definitely not raising my hands now. <laughs> Is it there? Is it true? When someone says to you, you're not to go and do this, the temptation is to go and do it, isn't it? You almost can't forget about it. You almost say, oh, I've got to go and do that thing. There's a rebel in us all. Verse 16 summarizes this. That rebel criticizes. God, forgive me. As I'm saying this, I know that it's in me. They set themselves up. They try to pull down an established order. Wow, is that happening in our time? And wow, is it happening in the church? They undermine, that rebel undermines. That rebel splits families. It's very woke. <laughs> My friends, be a ruler not a rebel. If you can't submit to the authority of Christ and to his leaders that he appoints, the problem lies with you. And these people that are listed, that was part of Korah's problem. Korah could not cope with the other leader. And in the end, God had to Deal with him. And that's what this book is saying. It's a warning. Although we're kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, it's warning us. Watch the rebel in you that can destroy the goodness of God. Respect. One of the greatest changes I've seen in my lifetime is a movement away from the fear of the Lord. Respect for the character of God and the cross of Christ. You see, we empty the cross of its greatness when we dismiss the judgment of God, when we dismiss the wrath of God, when we dismiss the punishment, the just punishment of God, when we reject the fear of the Lord, 
we take away from the cross. Because on the cross, Jesus bore all the holy anger of God against sin in his body when he became sin for us. It crashed upon him so much that he cried out, my God, my God. Psalm 22, why have you forsaken me? It diminishes God. It diminishes the cross. When we no longer think about the anger of God against sin, the justice of God, the punishment of God, it diminishes our God. Our God is loving. Our God is kindness. Our God is merciful. Our God is forgiving. Our God is welcoming. Our God is wonderful, but he's also just and right. He loves you, but he must punish sin. And he punished sin in Jesus Christ on the cross. You know, sometimes we say things which are not true. Grace is not unconditional forgiveness. Now, it's shocking you, isn't it? We've, it's not true. To receive the grace of God, we need to have faith that Jesus Christ died for that sin and we need to repent. It's repentance and faith is the gospel. To turn away from sin and put our faith in Jesus that he did enough on the cross to pay for my sin. It cost God. When the flood came in Noah's time, that I've already mentioned, the great grandson of Enoch, when, when that flood came, it says it pained God that he'd made man. It pains God to punish us for our sin and to punish Christ on the cross. The final thing, uh, reject we reject the authority, rejecting the authority of the word of God. Our reference point is the word of God. On every issue that we face, our reference point is the authority of the word of God. Let me tell you something. If, as we respect this word of God, we will see revival. As we respect this word of God. I've just come back, as you know, from South Sudan. And in South Sudan, we watched a beautiful thing. We watched a meeting taking place every evening. They have the word on audio because they don't read. A group of Toposa met. They have the audio player. They press the button. It, it's the word of God, pure word of God. A couple of verses, turn it off. They're all now arms in the air, worshipping, discussing, challenging. It's just all this in response to two verses. Then when they finished, press the button, two more verses. Whoa, those verses. Overwhelmed by the word of God. The, the word of God has an innate power, an innate authority, which impacts the human soul and brings us to a place of bowing our knee before Christ, that's one of its validations. And that's what the revival that's going on is based upon the word of God. I need to jump to the antidote 
for these three things. The rebel, the lack of respect for the character of God, the rejection of the authority of the truth. The antidote is three words. Building ourselves up in our most holy faith. Speak words that build up. Praying in the spirit. Walking in the spirit. Waiting for the return of Jesus Christ. Building, praying, waiting. I've listed there the last example. Remain in Christ. And I'll finish with an illustration and then we'll read the last two verses of Jude. Getting through a certain airport is very difficult in Africa. They want to intimidate you and they want to get money off you or uh, actually make you give them something. And I've experienced it several times. We were coming to the airport. We got off the plane, making our way to the very place where they start their work of trying to squeeze some money out of you. But as we entered, we realized that the very people that do this, the security guys, were also going through as a group, all in their suits, all with their bags, all heading for the same place. So Sue and I made sure we were in the middle of the guys <laughs> who were going through. Do you know, it took two hours to get through that airport the first time we went through. Do you know it took less than two minutes to get through? <laughs> When you're stood amongst those guys, you just wave to people as you go by, wave, wave, and just walk confidently, surrounded by those guys. We went in, no bag was checked, no passport was looked at, nothing was said to us, just waving, because ah, they're actually quite frightened of the people all around us. And you just go out the airport the other end. Hallelujah. You can walk through all this danger that Jude is talking about by remaining in Christ. As we walk in Christ, we have the protection of the whole of heaven, all the blessings of heaven upon us, helping us to make it through. Would you like to stand again? I want to read something to you. We're called to persevere, to be merciful to people who succumb to these things, even to ourselves maybe sometimes, <laughs> and to rescue people, recognizing we're not to agree with them in their rebellion, rejection, and lack of respect for the character of God. This is such a wonderful doxology. Are you ready? Now to him who is able to keep you from falling or stumbling, and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only God, our Saviour, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen. The Lord bless you.